Okay, so last week we read the envelope on the book of James. We got straight on who it was written to and, and why it was written and who had we gotten, we navigated through all the ver- various Jameses that were out there and we settled on James, the brother of Jesus, as the author of the book and we talked about how that was significant, that the reason that the words of James sound so much like the teachings of Jesus, particularly the Sermon on the Mount, as we'll look at today, uh, is because he would have spent a lot of time with him and that the way that he approaches even even this letter is in a very humble way, that he does not even claim to have a relationship with Jesus Christ beyond that that you and I share with Jesus Christ, and that is one of a servant, a bond servant, a slave, a slave to the most kind, most loving master that any slave could ever have. And so even though that term slave has for us a lot of negative connotations as well it should as people who live in the United States, when James speaks of being a slave to the Lord Jesus Christ, um, when your master is infinitely good and is infinitely kind and loving, and when his sovereign will is what stands but is also always what is best for you, then uh, it is the only kind of slavery that anyone would ever want to be in. So we pick up this week with um, James beginning to answer the question that we have said will be answered throughout the book, and that is what does genuine faith look like? What does genuine faith look like? look like. So I brought a $5 bill this morning. Oh, hey, that's a $20 bill. Nice. I brought a $20 bill for you this morning, and I just wanted to hold it up for you to see. Can you tell whether this is a genuine $20 bill or not from where you're sitting? No, you can't, right? Like this could be a fake $20 bill. In fact, there are a lot of $20 bills circulating right now that are fake. Um, Every year in the United States, um, upwards of $61 million in counterfeit currency is passed. And so uh, fairly recently, the government reissued what all of the paper money looks like. And you may have noticed that there were some changes, right? They added additional security measures. So now if I hold this up to the light, there's a watermark that I can see. And I can also see that there's a security thread that runs through one side of it. And then there's also on the front, there's color shifting ink where this 20 is. Depending on how I hold it to the light, it changes colors. All of these measures were put in place to make it more difficult to counterfeit uh, the $20 bill and the other bills that were on the market because there's a real cost associated with passing money that is not genuine. It hurts the economy. It hurts businesses. Well, in the same way, there is a real cost associated with exercising a faith that is not genuine. And it is a far greater cost than anything financial. It is a cost that has eternal consequences. It is a cost that is enormous. And so it is important for you and me as followers of Christ to ask of ourselves, is the faith that we say that we have a genuine faith? From a distance, you can't tell whether this is a genuine $20 bill or not. In order to find out if it's real, what do you have to do? You have to get up close and you have to examine it. And that is what the book of James is going to do for us. It's going to ask us to, were you hoping I'd give that away? Too bad. Um, I was, <laughs> the book of James will ask us to zoom in on ourselves and in some cases on others uh, as we need to, to ask the question, is what I'm seeing here a genuine faith? And if I know that I have belief, but my faith does not is not acting itself out in ways that demonstrate that it's genuine, then what is going on there? 
Because, you know, we become believers, but it takes time for our actions to match the change of our heart, doesn't it? So as I talk about us looking at what is a genuine faith, what does it look like, always bear in mind that James understands that he's talking to people who are new in their faith. I mean, think about it. This is the beginning of church history. So when he talks about growing to maturity, as we're going to see today, it's an important topic for him to cover because how many mature believers do you think that there were in the Christian church in, 20, in 44 AD? They're all babies. Who wants to pastor that church? No thanks. So when he calls people to maturity, what he's saying is, hey, this is what you're wanting to move toward. He's not accusing people of having an inauthentic faith as much as he's saying, this is what authentic faith should look like as you move toward it and you mature. So let's read through the passage that we have for today, and then we're going to go back and we're going to pull it apart a little bit at a time. James chapter 1, just for grins, we'll go ahead and start in verse 1 just so we can have it included. James chapter 1, 1 through 12 is our passage for this week. Starting in verse 1, it says, James, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ, to the twelve tribes in the dispersion, greetings. Verse 2, count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach and it will be given him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. So in these first verses of James, we have this contained idea, this contained idea that he starts by mentioning in verse 2 and 3, where he talks about the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And then when he gets down to verse 12, he sums it up and says, blessed is the man who remains steadfast. And so we have this overarching idea this week that genuine faith perseveres in trial. Genuine faith perseveres in trial. I don't know about you, but if someone said to me, what do you think are the marks of genuine faith? What I would have loved for James to have started with is something like, well, a person who has genuine faith um, has has a wall of crosses in their foyer. Or a person who is of genuine faith is someone who has a quiet time every morning. There are lots of markers that I would have loved for him to start with. So why does he have to start here? Why does he start with consider it joy when you meet trials of various kinds? 
Well, he's interestingly enough doing the same thing that Jesus does in the Sermon on the Mount. Do you remember how the Sermon on the Mount starts in Matthew chapter 5? It begins with Jesus saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, and hear that as mourn over sin, okay? Blessed are those who mourn, for they will be comforted. Blessed are the meek, for they will inherit the earth. Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they will be filled. And what, as he moves on through to the eighth one, do you remember what it is? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake for theirs is the kingdom of heaven do you hear what the assumption is there and then he reiterates it in the sermon on the mount blessed are you when people persecute you revile you say all kinds of evil about you rejoice and be glad for great is your reward in heaven he starts the sermon on the mount by saying You are blessed when you are persecuted, and persecution, trial, should be your expectation as a follower of Christ. So, so many of us, when we come into church today, or when we tune into a radio program, or we look on the TV, the message that we are hearing is not that message. It is not, come, take up your cross and follow me. It is, God loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. He absolutely loves you and has a wonderful plan for your life. But when this is the message that we lead off with, we end up having a lot of young believers who are absolutely taken by surprise when God's wonderful plan for their life includes in his sovereign will that they suffer. Been there? Lord, why is this happening to me? Don't you know the person who has said, the Lord is doing this to me and I don't understand because I've obeyed in this and I've obeyed in this and I've obeyed in this and so why is he doing this to me? Because in our thinking, we, we go back to that before salvation thinking of, surely I can earn the favor of God and then I will be spared difficulty. But that's not what the Christian life is about. Does anybody watch Downton Abbey? Oh, you are my favorite study members. I love that show. And there was one week where, partly because I'm like, I just want to be the Crawleys. How, does, how, how can I make that happen, right? And we'll actually talk about that thinking a little bit later on today. But so I think I could really fit in there just fine. And there was one week where uh, something bad had happened to the Crawleys. Shocker. It was like in season two. And Mrs. Hughes, the housekeeper, you know, she's downstairs. And one of the downstairs people makes a comment about, well, sure, they had something bad happen. But it's kind of hard to feel bad for them because, I mean, look at all the awesome stuff they have upstairs. And uh, Mrs. Hughes made the comment uh, that... Um, All of God's children have their share of sunshine and storm. That trials are no respecter of wealth or of poverty. Trials are what we have in this life because of the fall, because of what happened in the garden. And so when something happens to you and you want to ask the question, why? James is giving you an answer for why this week, right? He's going to say it's because they produce something needed in us. But there's a bigger why that we need to understand. Why do we have trials in this life? We have trials because when sin entered into the world, this is what happens. Things no longer work the way that they should. Our bodies don't work the way that they should, so we have the trials of health issues. Um, People are not honest, and so we end up with financial trials if someone has taken advantage of us. Or maybe we just didn't know how we were supposed to plan out our finances. It could be any number of things. You know, trials look so many ways, and I'm sure for as many women as there are in this room, there are as many stories of trials that we could share. 
And it doesn't matter whether you're a follower of Jesus or you're a lost person. All of us go through trials. What is the difference? The difference is in what trials produce. Because what do trials produce in the life of one who does not love the Lord? Anger, further brokenness, absolute devastation. But in us, they are going to produce something else. So let's take a look at what the text has to say. Verse 2. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. So let's stop right there and just pull this apart. First of all, notice that when James addresses us, as you looked at in your homework, he refers to us as my brothers. And if you looked at the footnote, what does it say? My brothers and... Sisters, So please don't feel left out when you hear the term brothers. I think it might have just been for space issues that they've cut it back to brothers, thinking that we would assume that we're included in that as well. But I want you to know James says, my brothers and sisters. And so although James does not identify himself as being connected to Jesus Christ in any way that would give him any status, notice that what he does with us repeatedly is say, you are my brothers and sisters. I am on a level field with you. He's not, and they all know it. They know that he is a leader in the church of Jerusalem. But what he is saying is, what I am going to ask of you is the very thing that I am asking of myself as well. I identify with you. You are my brothers and sisters in the finished work of Christ. Because he's asking a hard thing of them. He's telling them that they should count it all joy when, notice that it's not if, but when they meet trials of various kinds. And he knows that of which he speaks. He is not one who speaks without firsthand experience because remember, he's at the church in Jerusalem. And when Stephen is stoned, do you know where he was stoned? In Jerusalem. And when James, son of Alphaeus, the other James who we said couldn't have written the book, when he was martyred in 44 AD, do you know where he was martyred? In Jerusalem. This is James's present reality, is that to be a follower of Christ is to be someone who endures trials just because you are a follower of Christ. And so there are two kinds of trials that we can endure. There are those that just come to us as a matter of circumstance. And then there are those that come to us because we have committed to a course that we believe is right. And the trial could be removed from us if we would back away from what we have said we believe. And James is face-to-face with those kinds of trials and other trials as well. Because when you are a Christian convert from Judaism in this time, you are going to suffer all kinds of loss as a result of that. Clearly, you can't go to the synagogue anymore. You're not going to be welcome there. So modern-day equivalent, just imagine that you were in a church for your entire life and everyone knew you from the time you were born. And they were people you loved and you cared deeply about. And then you realized that that church was actually not a Christian church at all. But that it was a church that worshipped a false god. And so you have to break fellowship with those people. You can't go there anymore. It's been the center of your life for your whole life. And now those people are going to look on you as an enemy and a sellout. But not only that, imagine that your whole community revolves around being involved in that church. And so now when you go to the bakery to get bread, no one wants to sell you bread anymore because you're the one who left, who's chasing after some new belief system. 
And when you need medicine or when you need to transact business, all of these things now become complicated and hard for you because you're going to be rejected by the community that called you its own for so long. So to say I am a follower of Christ in the time that James is writing about is to tear yourself away from relationships that you have had for years and years and to become an outcast among familiar faces. In itself a trial and a trial associated with all kinds of smaller trials as well. Maybe some of you can relate to this kind of trial. Maybe you are the only believer in your family and they all think you're cuckoo for Cocoa Puffs. You know, you're the fundamentalist, and you're like, what, do you even know what a fundamentalist is? You know, and so maybe you can understand a little bit of what these people were feeling and what they were going through. But when James writes to them, he writes to them not as one who is merely sympathetic with what they are going through. He writes to them as someone who is empathetic. Why? Because it is his life as well. It is the thing that the Lord is pushing on him about as well. And he tells them that when, with certainty, they meet with trials of various kinds, they are to count it all joy. Now, I've heard this taught in wacky, wacky ways. I don't know if anybody else has. So you'll run into this person who thinks that this means that even when they are walking through their dark night of the soul, they're supposed to say, well, you know, you ask them, how are they doing? And they're like, I'm blessed, I'm blessed. And you're like, really? I don't think you are. Like, I get that you're saying that in your head, but I came here to give you a hug. And so let me give it to you because your life sounds really awful. Like you don't want to say that, but you're just like, wow. Like they're your benchmark for, I think things are okay at my house. And some poor soul who thinks that what this verse means is, I got to keep a cheery smile on my face. That is not what James is saying here. You notice that he doesn't say be joyful in trials. We talked about that in your homework. Trials hurt. They are not a cause of joy. But ultimately they will be for our joy if they bring about steadfastness. And that's what James wants you to understand is that when you count, when you reckon, when you measure what all of this is doing, you measure this as ultimately being a joyful thing for you because it means that the Lord is faithfully executing the work of growing you in maturity and steadfastness. And if you think about what we read about Jesus, we see that what James is asking us to do is exactly what Jesus did when he came and lived and died. Listen to Hebrews 12 too, and listen to this similar, uh, similar language. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith. Listen to this part. Who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you hear that? There was joy set before him. But when we follow through the Passion Week of Christ, do we see Jesus saying, I'm blessed, I'm just blessed. I just can't wait to go to the cross. Absolutely not. What a sham it would turn that story into. Instead, we see him cry real tears. We see him endure real emotional agony. We see him suffer deeply. But what Hebrews tells us is that he knew he had joy set before him. And this is what we have to understand. We should feel the weight of suffering. I don't know how you can't without becoming addicted to something or in complete denial. 
When you go through suffering, we feel it. And this is why we need the community of believers to circle around us and those who are not currently going through a trial to hold us up and be the lifters of our head and to say, there is joy set before you. And here is our understanding of joy. Listen to this definition. Joy is the emotion evoked by the prospect of possessing what one desires. The prospect of possessing what one desires. And so the joy that we are called to reckon or to count when we are in trials is a joy that looks forward to something that is certainly going to happen. The restoration of all things when Christ returns and the kingdom is finally at hand in its fullness and there is no more sin and no more sorrow and no more suffering, no more trials. And with joy, we look forward to that with a certain joy that it will come. The best analogy that I can give for this is of childbirth. So you may not have had the experience of childbirth yourself, but since women are always so open with those stories, I'm sure that you have heard someone share her labor and delivery story. It is a wonder women still have babies with all the stories that are out there. And so I remember, you know, with me, it was, I was, this was before things were as crunchy as they are now. And so I basically showed up and had a little twinge of pain and was like, is there a giant shot you could just jab right into my forehead that'll make that stop? Anybody got that? Uh, And so, but even so, even when you have whatever they're serving in labor and delivery, there is pain associated with childbirth. All of us reaches a stage in labor and delivery where we think, I don't know, I don't know if I'm going to make it. This hurts. But what do you know? You know that that is not a pain that will go on for 10 years, don't you? You know that that is a pain that is limited to a certain period of time. And that there is certainly joy on the other side of it. So that's something to think about. So if we think about suffering in this life as something that has a limited period of time in which it is allowed to happen. And if we know that the promises of God are true. Then we know on the other side of this limited period of suffering. There is great joy. And so for the joy set before us, we endure just as Christ endured. So James says, Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds, for you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking nothing. So let's pull this apart just a little bit more. It says that the testing of our faith will produce steadfastness in it. So first we have faith, and then we have trials that test our faith. And then from those trials that test our faith is produced steadfastness. And then what comes from steadfastness? We will be made perfect and complete, which is another way of saying mature. We will be made mature. So you have faith that is tested by trials that produces steadfastness, that, rela- that turns into maturity. This process that he is laying out for us here. Now the sense of this verse is, let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may grow to be perfect and complete. Not that you would be perfect and complete. People read this and they think it means, oh, wait a minute, so trials are going to make me stop sinning completely? No, of course not. 
It means that you will grow to completion, to fullness. Um, scripture says that even uh, Jesus was made, suffer- that the suffering that he went through made him complete. How can he be incomplete? He's Jesus. No, what it means is that he fulfilled all that there was for him to fulfill, that the, his ministry came to its full maturity in his suffering. And the same is true of us, although differently, because he was not dealing with sin as we are. So let steadfastness have its full effect that you may be perfect and complete, that you may be mature, lacking in nothing, lacking in nothing. So what does maturity look like? Well, I can tell you the impact that trials have on me. Anytime there is something, even if it's just in the evening news, one of those just absolutely despairing stories that you hear, I always think if this is a result of what happened in the garden, if this is what sin, if these are the outer workings of sin, this brokenness, man, that makes me hate sin. Doesn't that make you hate sin? And I don't mean sin like capital S sin that we're all practicing. I mean it makes me hate my sin. Because even if someone shoots up an elementary school and I'm not the one holding the gun, when I sin, don't I say yes to the things that make those things happen? So it makes me hate my own sin. That's the lesson I want to take from those things. Not, I feel powerless and there's nothing I can do, but I want to repent. I don't want to be part of this world system that operates out of such brokenness. So trials mature us by teaching us to hate our sin, but they also mature us by teaching us to long for heaven, don't they? Because we are really comfortable here. We feel fine with all of our stuff around us and all our people in their right places. But when a trial comes along... And we suddenly realize that this life is not a life where we can rely on comfort or ease or security in any way. Then we begin to detach our affections from this life and attach them to the next one. We count it all joy. We look at the joy that is set before us. That's a tough thing. I want you to know what this word steadfastness means because I think when we hear steadfastness in trial, you can look at it two ways. You can look at it as, I'm just going to hunker down and white knuckle it through till the end. Do you hear the passivity in that? And listen, there are times when you are going through a dark, dark time where that is all you can do. And you're lucky if you can do that, where you feel like you are coming unraveled. But steadfastness, as James describes it, is an active, intentional endurance rather than resignation. It is a determined act of the will that I will not only get through this, but I will get through this with my eyes fixed on that there is a future for me. And you can only have that kind of endurance when your focus is on one who is greater than you. What is the greatest reason that we should persevere? Why should we be those who value persevering? Why does James ask us to persevere? Is it not because our Heavenly Father perseveres toward us? We persevere in trial. We learn maturity. We learn that it is necessary to wait things through in an active and intentional way. Because what do we do with our Heavenly Father? We come to saving faith and then we continue in our sin and we fight through our sin and we continue to need grace. And what does the Lord do? Does he remove his love from us? Does he grow weary? He perseveres. He is a steadfast God. 
And the God who is steadfast toward you is telling you, be steadfast when trials come and set your hope on the joy that is before you. So uh, he says um, that if you do this, you'll be perfect and complete and lacking in nothing. Lacking in nothing. And then he turns around in verse 5 and he says, If, by chance, any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given him. This is so, so important because did you hear what just happened here? He doesn't just say, be steadfast and persevere. He says, you won't lack anything. And then he very gently says, has anyone noticed that they do lack something and maybe it's wisdom? And he says, if. He doesn't say when you lack wisdom, but what's the reality? It's a when. We lack wisdom. Anyone? I know you're the morning group and you don't want to say amen. Come on. Okay. So yeah, we all lack wisdom. We all lack wisdom. But he says that if we do, let him ask of God. And we hear that and it sounds to us like, if you feel like it. But that's actually imperative. What he's saying is, and if you read in other translations, it says, he should ask of God. Probably better to say, he, he must. You must ask of God. Why? Because God gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. We Christians love the idea of the prayer that we can ask in faith that will always be answered 100% of the time. You just heard it. God never refuses the request for wisdom. He always answers that one with a yes. So shouldn't there be a lot more wise people sitting in this room if that's the case? But what do we do when we're in a trial? Do we ask for wisdom? Is that the first thing we ask for? Okay, I'll tell you the first thing I ask for is, could we get out of this trial? Like now, miraculously? That's usually the first thing that I ask for. And then the next thing that I tend to ask for is actually not wisdom at all. It's knowledge. Lord, what should I do? Right? This is a terrible situation. What should I do? Tell me what to do. And this is our very human tendency is to ask the Lord for knowledge. But I want to push back on that a little bit. Let's go to the story of the wisest person in all of scripture. If you will turn to 1 Kings chapter 3. Old Testament. I know it's New Testament semester, but every now and then we're going to go enjoy the Old Testament for just a few minutes. First Kings chapter 3. We're going to read just very quickly through the beginning of the story to set it up. Who was the wisest person in all of scripture? Anyone? Solomon. Yay! Good Bible study girls. Okay, starting in verse 1. Solomon made a marriage alliance with Pharaoh, king of Egypt. He took Pharaoh's daughter and brought her into the city of David. David, who is Solomon's father. Okay, that's important. Uh, brought her into the city of David until he had finished building his own house in the house of the Lord. Um, And the wall around Jerusalem. The people were sacrificing at the high places, however, because no house had yet been built for the name of the Lord. Okay, so that means that there's idolatry in in the city, which is a bad thing. Okay, so basically Solomon succeeds his father David. Most people think that he was probably 19, 20 years old at the time that he comes to the throne. Was David a good king or a bad king in history's uh, recollection? He was a good king, right? Yes, he had some issues. That's how we got Solomon. But, um, but overall, he is the most celebrated king in, in Israel's history. He is the one who, you know, Jesus was said to come and take up his 
throne. So here comes Solomon, and he has to fill the shoes of that guy. All right? And so he's got idolatry issues in the land, and it says in verse 3, Solomon loved the Lord, walking in the statutes of David his father. So he gets it. He needs to be righteous before the Lord. But he's still very young because look at what it says next. Only he sacrificed and made offerings at the high places. Okay? So he's a little bit like these people that we're reading about in the book of James. They are new believers. They're trying to navigate between what used to be and what is. And so he still has his own issues with idolatry. And it says in verse 4, and I love that because we're going to see that the Lord still gifts him, that the Lord still uses him even as he is in process with setting aside idolatry. I need that to be true. Verse 4, and the king went to Gibeon to sacrifice there, for that was the great high place. Solomon used to offer a thousand burnt offerings on that altar. At Gibeon, the Lord appeared to Solomon in a dream by night, and God said, ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said, okay, what would you have, what would you have answered? A gazillion dollars of vacation to Tahiti. I mean, it's hard to get your game face on when the Lord says, what do you want? Because he's basically blank checking it here. Verse 6, Solomon said, You have shown great and steadfast love to your servant David, my father, because he walked before you in faithfulness and righteousness and in uprightness of heart toward you. And you have kept for him this great and steadfast love and have given him a son to sit on his throne this day. And now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of David, this, my father, although I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in, and your servant is in the midst of your people whom you have chosen, a great people, too many to be numbered or counted for multitude. Give your servant, therefore, an understanding mind to govern your people, that I may discern between good and evil, for who is able to govern this, your great people? Did you hear what he asked for? An understanding mind that he would be able to discern between good and evil. Okay, that's different than saying, tell me what's good and tell me what's evil. He asked the Lord, give him an understanding mind. And this is where we begin to see the difference between wisdom and knowledge, okay? Knowledge is, give me the facts. Wisdom is, help me to have discernment to know how to take the facts I have and choose what honors you. Two different things. Give me the facts versus take the facts I have and make the right choice. So with your children, you probably understand how this works, right? It would be really weird if my 17-year-old son came down in the morning and said, Mom, should I wear this shirt or this shirt? Because he's 17, he should know by now it's going to be 38 degrees out today, so you can figure this clothing thing out on your own. And what if he said, well, should I have oatmeal or should I have, you know, a candy bar for breakfast? You should be able to take the facts at hand and make the right choice. Why? Because our goal as parents is to teach our children to discern between what's the good choice and what is the bad choice. Our Heavenly Father is the same way. So let's see what happens next. Verse 10, it pleased the Lord that Solomon had asked this. And God said to him, because you have asked this, because you have asked for wisdom and have not asked for yourself long life or riches or the life of your enemies, but have asked for yourself understanding to discern what is right, behold, I now do according to your word. Behold, I give you a wise and discerning mind so that none like you has been before you and none like you shall arise after you I give you also what you have not asked both riches and honor so that no other king shall compare with you all your days and if you will walk in my ways keeping my statutes and my commandments as your father David walked then I will lengthen your days so move on down we'll just skip down to the the party verse 16 so he's brand new right first time on the throne he has to judge between right and wrong and what is the first case he gets right out of the bat 
Verse 16. Then two prostitutes came to the king and stood before him. Oh my gosh, is the day over yet? I mean, this is basically his first day on the job, and this is the first case that he gets. He's a dude, and these two prostitutes walk in. Verse 17. The one woman said, Oh my Lord, this woman and I live in the same house, and I gave birth to a child while she was in the house. Then on the third day after I gave birth, this woman also gave birth, and we were alone. So two women, two babies, three days apart in age. Okay? So they're in there alone, no witnesses. There was no one else with us in the house, only we two were in the house. And this woman's son died in the night because she lay on him. And she arose at midnight and took my son from beside me while your servant slept and laid him at her breast and laid her dead son at my breast. When I rose in the morning to nurse my child, behold, he was dead. But when I looked at him closely in the morning, behold, he was not the child that I had born. But the other woman said, no, the living child is mine and the dead child is yours. The first said, no, the dead child is yours and the living child is mine. Thus they spoke before the king. Then the king said, the one says, this is my son that is alive and your son is dead. And the other says, no, but your son is dead and my son is the living one. Stop, look at me. This is a tragedy playing out in front of him. You might want to read this and feel humorous about it, but we're women in this room and we understand that a terrible, tragic thing has happened here. A child is dead, a mother is grieving, and two mothers are grieving at this point. They need justice. They are the least of these. They are widows and orphans kinds of people, and they have a hearing before the king. And all of Israel is watching Solomon to see what he is going to do. Can he tell who the baby belongs to? No, there's no way to tell. There's no DNA testing. There's no witnesses. There's nothing that they can do. He's going to have to make the call. And so here's what you and I would probably do in this circumstance. We would say, everyone, can we just bow our heads in a word of prayer for a second? Heavenly Father, Lord, please tell me which one does the baby belong to? Just tell me who the mother is. But that's not what he does. That's not what Solomon does. Let's look back and see what he does. Verse 24. And the king said, bring me a sword. So a sword was brought before the king and the king said, divide the living child in two and give half to the one and half to the other. What? Then the woman whose son was alive said to the king because her heart yearned for her son, oh my Lord, give her the living child and by no means put him to death. But the other said, he shall be neither mine nor yours, divide him. Then the king answered and said, give the living child to the first woman, and by no means put him to death, she is his mother. And all Israel heard of the judgment that the king had rendered, and they stood in awe of the king because they perceived that the wisdom of God was with him to do justice. Solomon did not need to know the facts. He had enough facts. What he needed to do was exercise discernment put the facts together rightly, what he knew about human nature, what he knew about mothers. He didn't need to ask God which one because he already had wisdom. So when we hit trials and we move toward maturity, part of maturing in our faith is that we stop asking for knowledge and we start asking for wisdom. We start asking for wisdom. The ability to take the facts at hand and make the best choice that we can. If any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask God who gives generously to all without reproach. He never looks down and says, you don't have enough of that yet? You didn't use the last wisdom I tried to give you. 
He will never reproach you for humbly coming to him and asking for wisdom. He will give it, a promise you can take to the bank. Verse 6, but let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. For that person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So we have a contrast here between the one who will be made perfect and complete and the one who is unstable in all of his ways. And if you were to look in the Old Testament, you would see that he is playing on a familiar image here for them, this idea of the wave of the sea and the, and, and the man who is unstable. Isaiah 57, 20 says, But the wicked are like the tossing sea, for it cannot be quiet, and its waters toss up mire and dirt. Ephesians four fourteen, So that we may no longer be children tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness and deceitful schemes. Childishness and wickedness are associated with being double-minded. And in what sense is this man double-minded? He asked for something that God has certainly said that God will do. And then what does he do? He goes, falls back on his own resources. He does not believe that God is who he says he is. And so the double-minded man is one who lives in a state of spiritual schizophrenia. I trust you, but I trust me. We cannot live lives of spiritual schizophrenia. Either we can trust God or we can't. Be single-minded. Be a single-minded worshiper of God or be a single-minded worshiper of self. But choose this day which one you will serve. Tossed about like a wave on the ocean, unstable in all of his ways. A man who is double-minded is double-minded about the integrity of God. And we must not be this person is what James is saying. Why? Because when we hit a trial, what do we think? God has abandoned me. God has forgotten about me. God is punishing me. So I cry out to God, but at the same time, I think maybe God hates me or is punishing me. And he says, no, no, no. Go back to what you know. He loves you. There is joy set before you. Okay. Let him ask in faith with no doubting for the one who doubts is like a wave of the sea. And of course, the reason that we are called to be single-minded is because we have the greatest example of single-mindedness ever in the person of Christ, who again and again said, not my will, but yours be done. I have come to do the will of him who sent me. My daily bread is to do the will of the one who sent me. I am single-minded. I am single-minded. I am single-minded. Perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. So this is the first comparison that he gives us. Don't be double-minded. Don't be of two minds. And we will see many more comparisons as we go through the book. But let's move on to our next actual, our next comparison right here. Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. The flower falls and and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Now, this is actually not uh, James hating on rich people. We're going to talk more about that as we get further into the book. But what he is saying here is he's giving you a comparison. And he's saying there are two different ways that we can be tested in this life, two different kinds of trials, the trial of poverty and the trial of wealth. Because as Mrs. Hughes said, it doesn't matter how much you've got. 
there's always a trial that can come into your life. But even poverty itself and wealth itself can be trials. Poverty is an easier one for us to understand. God, I don't have my immediate needs met, so therefore I doubt that you are who you say you are. But then there is the other guy, right? The rich guy. And he says, I have everything I need, so I'm not sure that I even need you. Both of these trials that we have to consider. Listen to Proverbs 30, 8 and 9. Give me neither poverty nor riches, but give me only my daily bread. Otherwise, I may have too much and disown you and say, who is the Lord? Or I may become poor and steal and so dishonor the name of the Lord. Poverty and riches are their own set of problems. One is not better than the other. Well, I should say my dad always says, I've been poor and I've been rich. Rich is better. (laughs) So we know that there are things that become simpler when you have more money, right? Maybe your marriage tension decreases. There are things that get simpler when you have money, but there are also things that get harder. Everyone has their own set of difficulties that they deal with. And then he gives this image of the sun rising with scorching heat and withering the grass. He compares man, specifically in this case the rich man, but it's true of the poor man as well. And we see that other places in scripture. And he says the grass withers and the flower fades. And he's referencing a verse that says the grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever contrasting the frailty and the fleeting nature of man with the eternalness, eternality of God. These two things in contrast here. And the image that he gives is particularly poignant because they live in Palestine where it is extremely arid. Well, we live in Dallas where it's fairly arid. And you know how in the summer, if you have a rose bush, your rose gets all crunchy by the afternoon. It was like this really pretty bloom in the morning. By the afternoon, it's like nothing you want to bring into your house. Because why? It's this scorching heat from the sun. And that's the image that he wants them to see. They would be so familiar with this. This would be their day in and their day out. In fact, there is an Arab saying that says this, A land with only sunshine ends a desert. The Lord sends the sun and the rain. Because apparently when we have trials in our lives, it actually brings about the fruitfulness of steadfastness. So, moving on to his conclusion. Verse 12. Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life which God has promised to those who love him. What I want you to see as we are closing here is that James speaks a blessing over these people who are going through trials. He says, you can't feel it right now, but you are actually blessed. You are the one upon whom the the divine favor rests. The divine favor rests on you when you remain steadfast under trial because there is a future joy coming for you. So similar to how Jesus opens the Sermon on the Mount with blessed, blessed, blessed. And if you're unfamiliar with the Old Testament, you almost can't enjoy how beautiful these words are because what, was, what were the Old Testament laws about? What did so many of them begin with? If you read through Deuteronomy 27, do you know what it says? Cursed is the man who, cursed is the man who, cursed is the man who. You are cursed if. And so curse upon curse that fell upon us because we could not obey the law and we needed grace to intervene for us. And so when James says that we are blessed, this is why. Listen to the words in Galatians 3, starting in verse 10. For all who rely on works of the law are under a curse. For it is written, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. 
Now it is evident that no one is justified before God by the law, for the righteous shall live by faith. But the law is not of faith, rather the one who does them shall live by them. So in other words, the law judges us and pronounces us cursed. So how then can James say that we are blessed? Verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who is hanged on a tree. So that in Christ Jesus, the blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles. The blessing of Abraham meaning the promise of salvation. The blessing of Abraham might come to the Gentiles so that we might receive the promised spirit through faith. James pronounces us blessed because our Lord Christ, his half-brother, was in his sight, made a curse for us. We look forward to a crown of life because Christ, during his earthly time, wore a crown of thorns. In Genesis chapter 3, what is the man told will spring from the ground when he toils the soil? It is thorns. And so Jesus visibly taking on in a picture form that curse that lay on us all the way back in Genesis 3 and saying, I become a curse so that you can be called blessed. He becomes a curse so that we can be called blessed. We are not promised a crown in this life. We are promised a future crown. But why would we, who take up our cross and follow Christ, ask to wear a crown of glory in this life when our Lord wore only a crown of sorrow and shame? We want to identify with him. We don't want to identify with him. Do you feel the double-mindedness? I don't want that, but I want that. Lord, help thou my unbelief. Give me wisdom. Let me see that the better thing is to walk this thorny path because a crown awaits. I always have trouble with that whole, um, uh, I'm a princess, I'm a daughter of the king (laughs) mentality that's out there. People say it in a well-meaning way. We tell our daughters, you're a princess, you're a princess. And it's true. It's true. But we are princesses who do not wear crowns now. We have a future crown that awaits for us when one day the one who is infinitely wise will be seen face to face. And on that we set our joy. So what does genuine faith look like? Genuine faith perseveres in trial. What difficulty are you facing this week? Can you count it all joy? Maybe you're not in a trial right now. Who do you know who is? How can you be a lifter of their head? Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you for these words that you have for us through the book of James. We confess to you that we feel weak and unable, and we cry out to you for wisdom and for strength. We pray, Lord, that you would turn us into single-minded people, those who understand that neither wealth nor poverty can give us a clearer view of who you are, Lord, but that through the trial of whatever you place before us, We can grow into maturity. Teach us to crave maturity, Father. 
We thank you for the great empathy with which James brings his message as one who is a fellow sufferer. And we pray, Lord, that we would be fellow sufferers and empathetic sufferers with those who you've placed in our spheres. And we ask all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.